This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we look at domestic missions in North America situated in a complex landscape of changing faith, ethnic diversity, and racial unrest. We talk with Daniel White Hodge about his new book, Homeland Insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel White Hodge. He's an associate professor of communication at North Park University in Chicago. He also serves as editor-in-chief of the Journal of Hip-Hop Studies. He's the author of several books, including Heaven Has a Ghetto, The Soul of Hip-Hop, and Hip-Hop's Hospital and Hip-Hop's Hostile Gospel, A Post-Soul Theological Exploration. Today, we're talking about his new book, Homeland Insecurity, A Hip-Hop Missiology for the Post-Civil Rights Context. Daniel White-Hodge, I've been wanting to do this for so long. Welcome to Things Not Seen. (laughs) Thank you so much, sir. It's great to finally be here in person. Yeah, so I'm very interested in jumping in to kind of the midpoint of Mm -hmm. your book. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a a chapter where you talk about the late rapper Tupac Shakur. Yes. And and I know that Tupac Shakur is an important touchstone for you and for your way of navigating hip-hop theology. Good you, way of putting it. you make an observation, though, that Tupac Shakur sort of picks up the mantle of the blues, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I would li- I'd would i like to start there. So first of all, yes. um, for listeners that may be unfamiliar with the ways that in which the blues intersect mm-hmm. with religious faith, give us a quick overview of how that has worked in American history. Absolutely. I think, uh, and I would point people to an oldie but goodie book by John Michael Spencer called Religion and the Blues, and this came out probably in the mid-80s. Um, but I still use it as a reference. It's a wonderful ethnomusicological study and theomusicological study of what the blues did. And essentially, in essence, it was the blues presented a form of the African-American diaspora in a way that gave credence to the pain and suffering through music, through dance, through juke joints, uh, through the ability to weave your narrative through a musical instrument. And so that connected, right, with what we would define now as the griot narrative back from the you know 6th and 7th century african journey right and so that connected very much to you know the mc telling the story you know what what is the story of people what is the story of of love of engagement of in you know of letdown of love all those things combine into music and the blues was able to really uh, navigate all of that, right? In, in real simple, right? In, in simplistic ways, but yet very, when you think about even jazz, I mean, when you think about what, you know, uh, Duke Ellington was doing, or you think about Coltrane, you know, especially, I hate to say this, but especially when Coltrane was still on drugs, I mean, it's like there's an amazing sound that comes from that. I hate saying that, because it's like, I don't want anybody on drugs, but the sound was amazing, right? Quincy Jones is another one. I've just watched the Netflix special on, you know, the documentary on him. It's amazing just to see that brother, you know, how he developed. But again, blues 
was a formation of that. And so hip hop is rooted in that in that tradition. One phrase that folks like me sometimes will hear is that the blues ain't nothing but a good man feeling bad. Yes. And and so I want to connect that first of all yes. to the notion of lament. Mm. And and so there may be some listeners who who maybe have heard of the book of lamentations but maybe have never read it because they're not pointed to it. <laughs> we tend to avoid lament in the Christian tradition in America, don't we? Yes. Why is that? I think there's just there's not a lot of answers in lament. Or if we do lament, it's for a quick moment and then we want to hop towards the solution, right? It's like we want to hop towards, and that was one of the struggles I had putting this book together because, you know, I had a talk with my editor uh, and and David uh, Congdon, who was amazing on the first round of edits of this book, worked with me and he is great. And then I started to work with Al Shu, who's also amazing and also supported my vision and idea of the book, which was, I don't want to provide any solutions at the end, right? Typical Christian evangelical books, right, tend to provide the okay, here's the problem, and now let's do these five things, and now things will be better. Lament, I think, is a process. It's a journey. It is... It is, it's not rational, mm. right? You can't put it into systemic things and be like, okay, now we're done. But it's a very necessary part of, I think a faith journey of any kind, not just Christians, but Buddhists. When I talk to Sikhs, when I talk to uh, my brothers and sisters in the Muslim faith, it's like, man, lament is needed, especially in times of trouble. But Christian, let me say Christian industry yes. in America is scared to not be in the hope business. We're scared not to be in the answer business. We're scared yes. not to be in the Jesus is the solution business. Yes. And one of the things that is clear is that we have a kind of a, a two-direction experience yes, in America. So, so white Christian experience mm -hmm. is going to be one that is rooted in this hope and kind of ignoring the reality. What you're bringing out in this book, Homeland Insecurity, is, is the other reality, and that yes. is... When we look at our culture, when we look at hip hop music, when we mm -hmm. look when we look at African American experience in the civil rights era and beyond, we don't see hope, hope, hope. We see a rooting in lament because they literally live in a toxic and sometimes lethal there you go. atmosphere. Yes. And white Christian America is scared not only to name that, but to have that named. Yes. First of all, do I have that correct? Yes. Okay, and so if, if, if white Christian America is scared to have that named, white Christian America has deployed tactics to keep that from being named. Yes. Which means that when, when we have things like the blues and the beginnings of rock and roll, mm -hmm. it gets sanitized into Pat Boone and Elvis. <laughs> and when we have the beginnings yeah. of hip-hop, it gets sanitized into the Beastie Boys and into Vanilla Ice. Sure. But you want to expose us instead to the real truth-tellers, those that are speaking the lament. Mm-hmm. And so that brings us then to Tupac Amura. Yeah, Amaru, yeah. Amaru Shakur. Mm -hmm. And for listeners who are unfamiliar with Tupac Shakur, first of all, just give us a quick overview of who he was. Absolutely. I mean, he's one of the, well, in, within the hip-hop continuum, cultural continuum, he's renowned as, you know, probably one of the saints of, of, of hip-hop culture. I mean, born in 72, passed away in 96. I do believe he's dead, and I get that question a lot. You think he's alive? Like, no, no, he's dead. There's no way he'd be this, <laughs> gone quiet this long. But uh, he was more than just a rapper. I mean, he was a visionary. He was somebody who wanted to see his community, and by his community, not just African Americans, but those who were downtrodden, those who were marginalized, those who were pushed aside and said, 
nah, you're not really all that anymore. You know, it's like he wanted to see those people succeed and strive and to live their best life and to be able to point them towards God. And, and in many ways, he was like a theologian, a pastor, somebody, this gateway into the spiritual world. And then politically, I mean, he was raising money for a hip hop political candidate for the year 2000. Uh, he was organizing the gangs across the United States to put rules into place that's, that wouldn't just have school shootings, selling crack on, you know, uh, on school grounds and, you know, and having these senseless deaths. He was doing some dangerous stuff, as we would say. and Politically and dangerous. Politically dangerous, absolutely. You know, and really trying to empower, especially after the 92 uprisings, empower the ethnic minority community and those who are poor white as well. And, and you know, the M&Ms, if you will, of our communities to do better um, and to seek beyond what's just in front of them. And, uh, of course, he wasn't perfect. He had his issues and uh, reading his memoirs and his diary, uh, which I was privileged to get. You know, he talks about just some of the paranoia that he had towards the latter part of his life. I mean, he still had the vision, but he was still he was definitely paranoid. And he was getting ready to leave Death Row Records, which was at that point one of the largest West Coast, you know, producing companies with Suge Knight at the helm. But Suge Knight is, well, if you don't know, Suge Knight was just, at that point in time, he was just, a, he, he wasn't a good guy. Mm. He wasn't a good guy. So Tupac, unfortunately, was killed. But his, you know, his music just lives on. I mean, he's he's still he's. I mean, what over fifty eight million? I mean, albums sold. And you know, back in the era when we still bought albums, now it's streaming. But um, you know, he's still renowned. I mean, my daughter's friends know about him. I mean, I was like, how do you even know that? You were born almost, you know, fifteen years after you know he was he was killed. You know, but that's how powerful his message is. Well, you mentioned though the paranoia, and one of the things that I think is going to be woven through this entire entire conversation and is a present reality in your book is that we're talking about people who are raised in post-traumatic stress. Yes. We're talking about people for whom walking out on the street can be a life or death decision. Absolutely. The route that you take home can be a life or death decision. Yes. That's not a reality that some people in Chicago or some people in my listening audience will have experienced except maybe watching it on television. Yes. And so Tupac you know, you say Tupac wasn't perfect. He was living that reality. And one of the things that really struck me, you have a lyric here that says, you don't blame the rose that comes up through the concrete yeah, there you go. For, its, for its bruised petals. Yes. You say, how in the world did it do that? Yes. And that, that to me, that's, that, that just stopped me cold, the reality of that, that we, mm -hmm. we, we, we tend to focus on things like the drug use, the violence. What we don't realize is the, the survival and how much praise should be given to someone like yes. Tupac yes. for being as successful as he was. Yes, absolutely. That's a great analogy. That's a, yes. Was his lyric. I mean. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. No. I mean, and I think that, I mean, he actually has a, a poetry book, which I highly recommend called The Rose That Grew From Concrete for people to check out and read because it's just, it, it, there's a lot of that in there. And it goes beyond particularly what the media presented of him in the 90s. And most of the pictures you see of him was him flipping people off, spitting in the camera, grabbing his crotch or, you know, swearing or whatever. And, and yes, those are parts of who he was, but that wasn't the sum total um, of who he was. And that's what piqued my interest and, uh, and it just uh, it unraveled a whole just plethora of material in him. So if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen, and we're speaking today with my friend Daniel White Hodge. We're talking about his new book, Homeland Insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context. As you stick with us, we're going to be getting into not only the contents of the book, but also the podcast that Daniel White Hodge hosts, which is called Profane Faith, which I highly recommend. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in just a moment. 
Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel White Hodge. He's Associate Professor of Communication at North Park University in Chicago. We're talking today about his new book, Homeland Insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context. So I occasionally get complaints from my listeners when I speak to people who go down a road that they would consider to be something like political correctness or mm-hmm. naming whiteness as the problem or those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I know that I'm going to get some complaints about the conversation that we've already had in the first All right. segment. All right. But let's let's just go there. Let's talk about when white America, when white Christianity looks at a person of color naming their experience and says, see, that's the problem. If you just stopped talking about this, we wouldn't have a problem with race anymore. Yeah, yeah, How do yeah. you deal with that? Well, that's a good question. That's a real good question. I think I'll say this. In the post-Trump election now and in the new new neo era of Trump era, I haven't gotten as much of that simply because so much of racism is just... It's just now in your face. I mean, a lot of this stuff is, particularly as a black man racially, ethnically, I'm African-American and Mexican-American. We knew some of these things, but they were always hidden in corner. It was, it was almost like a phantom. Like, you see something, but then it goes away, and you're trying to tell people, hey, that was, there was something there. And they're like, no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. No. And, like, and right, that, that excuse of, we've just stopped talking about it. It'll just go away. So I haven't gotten as much of that. I, I, so I've tried to, like, engage, because now there's just so many things that are happening in our news. You can look at stuff here in Chicago. You think about Jamel, you know, the security guard, African-American security guard, who's, you know, stopping a mass shooting. But then he ends up getting killed himself. I mean, by the police, by the police. Yeah. They come in and they see an African-American with a gun and they immediately assume he must be the perpetrator. Right. Yeah. Right. Those are the type of things. And I'll be honest with you, David. I mean, it's difficult because I feel like in this era, particularly since the 2016 election, I just I don't necessarily engage in those type of conversations anymore because. If, if, with, all, with all due respect to anyone listening, it, there's just a lot of ignorance in that. And I try to point people to, you know, because I'm like, I'm just not the person to, to engage with. Because if you're still there, I've got to do so many things just to get you to a place where you're even aware of the problem. I'm I, I, I'm not the one. Even yeah. though I'm a professor, I'm not the one. <laughs> well, there's, there's a point in your book, Homeland Insecurity, where you literally say that. You say this book is for two types of people. It's for people who are coming through, you know, they're persons of color and they, they're trying to find some solidarity in your writing. Or it's for people who are white or who identify as white who understand some of where you're going. And you say there, there's a third group that probably has already stopped listening to the conversation at this point. And this yeah. book's really not for them. And, right. and you just said pretty much the same thing. Like, you don't have the, the energy or the time to do the deep education that's necessary. Right. But what I also heard in your answer is, 
literally all you have to do is look around or listen to the news and the deep education is already there. Like yes. what, whatever was below the surface has bubbled up to the surface. Yes. But one of the things that you talk about in this book, Homeland Insecurity, is mm-hmm. that we're not just talking about secular institutions. You've encountered this kind of entrenched racism and this kind of gaslighting about racism yes. where, where you try and speak the experience and someone says, your experience is not is not worthy of 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 discussion in Christian organizations, and we're yes. not going to name names, but let's speak generally. Yes. You encounter this in Christian circles. Absolutely. How has your experience of that been? What What has been? Give us a typical example of that. Oh man, I mean, for example, when I first started teaching uh, at the university level, I remember a white male student saying. First day of class, he's just like, what's the difference, professor? You know, he's like, you know, getting out of his seat, raising his hand and everything. He's like, professor, professor, professor. I'm just always had this burning question. I'm thinking he's going to ask, like, man, maybe he did the pre-reading. This is great, you know. What's the difference between an N-word and a black man? He didn't say N-word. <laughs> he said the full out, right? And, of course, the class is kind of looking at him like, you know, and but that type of stuff, right? And he didn't think there was anything wrong with that. I mean, I had another white student, higher ed, Christian education, telling me, he's like, I, I have a hard time respecting you because I know you were hired for diversity purposes. And it's hard for me to, you know, not look over the other four or five qualified white men, you know, that were looked over, to, you know, to hire you. So these are the type of things, right, that just come out. And those are the stuff that are kind of brazen. I mean, there's a lot of what we, you know, define as microaggressions, right, as uh, I remember one time a student just started yelling at me because, you know, it was the first time she ever gotten a C- minus on her papers. And, you know, she was like, how, you know, effing dare you? So I was like, all right. I'm done. I'm taking this to the department chair. We're going to have a conversation. And her response to me was just, you know, when we were having these conversations, well, I just figured that was the, the language you'd understand. You know? <laughs> so stuff like that, right? In the classroom, people walking in and saying, hey, where's the professor? I'm like, well, I'm standing right here. Those type of things add up, right? A friend of mine, a colleague of mine, Anthony Bradley, writes a couple of books uh, called, you know, Being Black in White Spaces. He writes a couple of books on that and talking about what is the ethnic minority experience, right, in white spaces like that. And it's it's rough. I mean, it's rough because, you know, oftentimes you're tasked with being the ethnic minority for everything, right? Multicultural day, you know, MLK celebration, you know, it's like Black History Month. And so those things get taxing after a while. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, a lot of ethnic minorities leave institutions, right, after a while. And it's not just higher education, but, you know, nonprofit, the church world, places like that. There's also a difficulty that you describe here in your book, Homeland Insecurity, and that is you have devoted your scholarly life to studying this eruptive, very pervasive cultural phenomenon that we call hip-hop, yes, which sir. started in the 1970s yes. and has really been, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's, yes. I mean, you, you, yes. can't, you can't deny that it's a cultural force, and yet you, you, you talk about other scholars who have considered when you've presented on this that maybe you're making a joke or they have mm-hmm. completely dismissed and denied. Mm-hmm. And what fascinates me is that mainline churches are continually trying to figure out how can we be relevant to the youth? How can we speak right. to millennials? But they refuse to recognize the language and the culture that millennials right. are listening to. And right. and you've gone straight into the heart of that, and yet it has been treated as if it's somehow an illegitimate source of study. Absolutely. When we look at hip-hop, when we yes. look and, and this scholarly pursuit that has been denigrated by some of your colleagues, when we look at Jesus 
acting in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Jesus spoke in the language of the people that yes. they were using at the time. He yes. used images yep. from their daily lives, and he, and he talked about things that were their realities. Yes. When we look at someone like Tupac Shakur, when we look at DMX, when we look at, at KRS-One, yeah. we're looking at artists who are speaking from an experience and articulating that experience in a way that both resonates with the listeners who live it, but also Mm -hmm. allows others to have empathy with it who don't share that experience. Right. So there's a real connection to gospel language here, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And and if we we avoid that or if we say, well, that's not the King James English, we're kind of (laughs) missing the point of what Jesus did. Because yes. even though we, we've put the words thee and thou in Jesus's mouth, Jesus spoke in some ways more like someone from the streets. Brother, I always say this, man, and I, I say this a lot. People, you listeners have heard me before. You know I've said this, but it's like, man, Jesus was hip hop. Jesus, I mean, he came from the hood. He had baby mama drama, hung out in the hood. One of his boys did him in. It's like, come on, man, that's a hip hop narrative, right? That is something that... We overlook, and he was also revolutionary. I mean, people couldn't stand this brother, right? And especially if we read paracanonical literature, I mean, there is times when Jesus was just like going in on folks, and even his disciples were like, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you calling the Pharisees and Sadducees dogs and vipers? Like, man, don't you know who these people are? He was beefing with the Pharisees. Right. <laughs> and so, and you know, he's throwing down, and right, and, you know, in the synagogues, you know, in there, what we would call as battle raps, what we would call as lyrically engaging, right? This rhetoric, the language of hip hop, which is not just conflict, but it's also community. And so it's this conflict and community constantly going on. And that's kind of where Jesus, we find Jesus doing it. I love the narrative of Jesus. I love studying more about who Jesus was because I think it's been so sanitized. And I think hip hoppers want a desanitized image of who Jesus is. And some of what you talk about in your book, Homeland Insecurity, is the ways in which hip-hop artists have desanitized Jesus. So you talk about Tupac Shakur saying, you know, I want a Jesus that smokes like I smoke, a Jesus that talks like I talk. And some listeners are going to recoil from that. We have to recognize that, at least if you read the Gospels, Jesus used intoxicants. Jesus occasionally used harsh language. And Jesus was confrontational. And we like Jesus, okay, I'm going to speak now, the we that I'm owning is is the white people. We like Jesus to be confrontational about the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, not the stuff that's really problems in the world. World. But Jesus didn't come for my comfort. He didn't die for my comfort. Jesus died that we might all be saved. Right. And that means that we're all going to have to be faced with some harsh realities and that whiteness is going to have to repent of some things. Yes, sir. <laughs> I know I know that I'm preaching to the choir here, but I'm also saying this for some listeners that might this might be the first time that they've heard mm-hmm. this kind of engagement with Jesus and mm-hmm. this kind of ownership of Jesus by a community that doesn't look like them. Yes. That's an uncomfortable thing for some people to Ab- experience. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and you, you've named some of that discomfort when you've talked about even students that are that feel emboldened to question your right to be in their space. Yes. This again and again, and you've talked a little bit about self-care, this kind of invading of space is precisely what Jesus did, though. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, Je- exactly. Jesus Jesus didn't look like us. He wasn't supposed to be like us. Even the demons, when Jesus first shows up, said, <laughs> right. you're not supposed to be here. The last time we saw you, you were sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Why right. are you? Right. And, and so... We, we have to remember that the Jesus is not going to come to us in the way that makes us comfortable. And you use this word sanitary, mm-hmm. uh, the sanitized Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it about, about our discomfort that makes Jesus such a target for that kind of sanitization? 
I think looking at deity, we want to shape deity in the image of us. And we want to put that image into a construct that, right, that works for that day and time. And I'm fine with that to an extent, but when it becomes, well, monetized in some ways, when it becomes standardized in many other ways. Or when it becomes idolatrous, when it becomes, yeah. Oh, but that's exactly where I was going next. And yeah. so... For me, that that's that's problematic. And Ebony Utley writes a great book on the gangster's God. You know, looking at this Jesus beyond right the white evangelical conservative white evangelical lens. Um, and it's a, it's a whole different story. I had to take that lens off. I realized there was a lot of my own theological mind that was colonized, and I had to you know it was because it, it's disruptive. I don't want to see Jesus this way. I don't want to look at Jesus. This is my savior, of course not. No. But when you're able to release some of that and go into the mystery of who God is, and with with doubt, I, I've I've found for me personally, I ain't gonna say anybody else. For me personally, I've found great, great faith development um, um, in that. But we wanna we wanna make this Jesus into this this image, and oh my Jesus never talked like that. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel White Hodge about his recent book, Homeland Insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper, She's a front-lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're talking today with Daniel White Hodge about his recent book, Homeland Insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context. In your previous books, you've helped to spell out how hip-hop and theology connect. Yes. In this book, you have a specific goal. You're not trying to make those connections. You're building on those connections to speak particularly to the question of missiology. Yes. Now, for those that are unfamiliar with that term, first of all, quickly, what does missiology mean? Missiology is, is a couple of different things. It's one, the study of missions, the missio dei, what is, what, what is God up to and how do we look at the Great Commission that Jesus uh, emboldened us with and encouraged us with and said he'd walk with us with. But it's also an understanding of what does a contextualized gospel look like in a specific area or people group, right? When you think about missions... Um, we have to begin to look at what does that connotation mean, say, for Native Americans when you think about missions and what that, you know, what does that mean to Latin Americans when you think about somebody like, you know, uh, Father Una Teresa, you know, it's like, what does that mean? What is, how does that connote? And so that's also part of that formation. So missiolog- missiology, I'm looking at this in then sense, looking at hip hop as that vehicle for that. But so mission has always been an uh, an us, and I'm pointing to my chest, going to them, 
and I'm kind of pointing generally out there. But one of the things that you talk about in your book is that the reality, the landscape of American Christianity in the past 15 years has changed. Mm -hmm. And there have been some white churches in the suburbs that have been used to going into the city for context, but those white churches have lost their membership. And now those churches that are in the inner city have actually offered, hey, we can come out to you. Right. And we can we right. can we can have conversations about right. about this, and the the reaction of those white churches has been no 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 yes. and anger yes we we go to you you don't come to us right and you you say that almost verbatim that attitude of we have the answer and we're not in a position it's not humble <laughs> there's there's no, no there's no openness to correction there's no right. openness to to the to the continual moving of God mm-hmm. it it speaks to a particular worldview doesn't it. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And, and so that, that worldview of, of we, the white churches, have basically the lock on Christianity, mm-hmm. there's an entire—I I know that you're talking about missiology, but that, that speaks then to a notion of God-forsakenness. Yes. And, and if the world is God-forsaken, what does that say about God to say that somehow God would abandon the ghetto? Yes. And, Absolutely. Well, and, and, and so to bring this fully around to Tupac Shakur, mm-hmm. um, there's a, a question that Tupac Shakur asks. Mm-hmm. I wonder if heaven has a ghetto. There you go. And you answered that question in your book, Heaven Has a Ghetto. Has so, ghetto. So, yeah. to, so for my listeners who maybe are just catching up right now to, yeah. the, to the conversation that you and I just had, uh-huh. walk us through that. First of all, Tupac's notion, his question, does heaven have a ghetto? And your answer, heaven has a ghetto. Help us understand theologically what that means. It's asking that question of, is there actually theological space in an environment that has been dominated by one particular race, right? It's like, does, as Tupac says, it's like, you know, or is God just another white cop waiting to beat me you mm. know, when I get to heaven? And so you say not just dominated by a race, but dominated by an ideology that's tied up in that race. Yes. So, so yes. It's, we're not just talking about white people. We're talking about an entire social structure yes. that preferences whiteness through redlining, that preferences whiteness mm-hmm. through economic mm-hmm. advantages, mm-hmm. and that has been doing that for generations. Yes. Publishing. Yeah. And I continue to talk about that. I mean, in terms of, you know, I mean, I talk about this in the book as well. It's like, you know, racism is in the theological DNA. It's like, you know, when you go to seminaries, I mean, you have to, courses on race and ethnicity and stuff that we're talking about are usually, what do they call them? Uh, you know, the electives, right? You know, you don't, they're, they're not in, in the, the, the actual curriculum. It's extra to the real theology that we're supposedly exactly. doing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And Sun Chan Rai has talked a lot about this. Like there is a main theology, but then you have all these other adjunct theologies of liberation theology or Asian theology or, you know, and so, there, but here's the one main theology that we have to study from. And so, you know, I challenge folks to, you know, you know let's go beyond that. There's a problem when Christians in Sierra Leone don't want other theologians from their context. There's a problem when Nigerian Christians don't want other Nigerian theologians and they desire the European. That is the, the manifesto and the manifestation, if you will, articulated in a people's understanding of God, of whiteness and, you know, self-colonization. And so for me, I want to push against that. And I know it's been my own process of, of, of coming through some of that decolonization. And I know that's uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yes. So how do we speak against that notion that somehow whiteness was the pure civilization, that whiteness was the... 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So that's that's really the first section of this book, looking at going all the way back to the age of exploration and really talking about, so I cite different historians talking about how Europeans really saw, particularly Africans, Central Africans and, and you know, and, and North, North Central Africans. And so, and the way they talked about them was very much like, these are lower, you know, human species and we have to bring them in and, you know, and, and make them, bring them into a way of learning that is the best. I believe the phrase you use is pre-Adamic. So yes. created before Adam like they were animals. Yes. And that's 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 a vicious theology. Shh, brother, who you telling? <laughs> who you telling, man? And you know, and I think those are the type of things that right that just don't get talked about very much in seminaries. I mean, I know I didn't get it. I had to, you know, wait till I got into a PhD program and, and started looking on my own before I started really getting into that. And so you know, how do we not repeat history? Well, like, let, we got to deal with it. I mean, then you know, rush all the way into the 19th century where, you know, African-Americans were looked at as lazy, as violent, as uh, sex mongers, as people who were just doing nothing but labor. And the white man was the one doing all the, you know, the, the work. And they are hard workers and they're dedicated and they're on time. All these things are notions, right, that are woven right into how we look at missions. I mean, look at Alan Chow, right? I mean, he's like this brother who goes out and, you know, was killed, which, I'll say from the jump, I don't I don't condone his killing. I will also say that as a person who was from Oral Roberts University, who that's very conservative, well, I can only imagine he, you know, probably didn't have a lot of courses on intercultural communication. Or if he did, it was, again, sanitized. Or he was given a view of the gospel that you take this into the world. I can only imagine him being an ethnic minority and how much he had to deny that because that's what you have to do oftentimes is an ethnic minority you have to deny where you come from to be a christian that's problematic and stuff that's very problematic well I, i'm thinking right now of you know there was a movie out i guess about 25 years ago called blood in the face which yes. looked at the rising of 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 white nationalism yes yes you know a, a, an entire generation before the the milieu that we're living in now yes the moment that we're living in now there's a an illustration from that movie that has a, a picture of a, of a white man in a hard hat, and it says, white men built this nation, white men are this nation. Yes. And that's that's really a predominant theology yes. of, of Christianity. So mm -hmm. white men built Christianity, white men built America. Yes. It ignores the fact that a good deal of our, you know, our railroads were built largely by Chinese immigrants. Yes. Our agriculture and our the beginnings of our industry in the South certainly were built by African-Americans and by unpaid African-American labor. Mm -hmm. So to say somehow that those that reaped the fruits of the labor are responsible for the labor, it makes me think of that story in, in the Gospels where Jesus says, you know, there are some that come at the 11th hour and they're going to get paid the same wage as those that were working from the beginning of the day, but it takes that story and turns it inside out. Mm -hmm. Like the, mm -hmm. meaning, the meaning of that story is supposed to be about grace and that grace extends to everyone, even those that come late. Right. But instead, white people and, and whiteness seemed to get that story and think instead, oh no, we're entitled to all of these. Right. And those that labored at the beginning won't get paid at all. Right. I mean, I first of right. all, it. I just, I kind of went somewhere with that. Is is that a legitimate kind of stretch? No, absolutely. No, I mean, I think you're on it, brother. And again, going back to Tupac, I mean, he talks about this. He talks about this in many different interviews where he says, you know, it's like, you you know, it's like you got, like America, you know, you got a friend that you never look out for, right? It's like, you know, America's now all got jewels and everything, and they're lending money to everybody except us, meaning black folk who help 
establish this. And not just black folk, like you said, Chinese immigrants. You have the Bracero program during the 20s that, you know, that I had family members who were a part of that folks were invited from Mexico to come over here to help build infrastructure, to help build. Those later became the migrant rights movement when the country was saying, no, you got to go back now. When you went away, we just helped build this whole this whole country. We just helped you through two world wars. And 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 now you're telling us to leave. And so that history, I think, has been overlooked. And part of the problems that we're even having now, you know, at our southern border. And so that brings us to the question then of repentance and mm. how those that have benefited from this deception, this who have benefited from this blinkering of the reality, okay. can begin to come back into to come back into righteousness. Let's just yeah. name it as what it is. Yes. And maybe it starts with listening to the voices of those that have been hurt, which might mean listening to hip hop. Is that a fair thing to say? I would agree. I so mean, where absolutely. so where should they start? Like if if you were to if you were to say, okay, you you have you've made the commitment to listen to the lament where would be a good place for them to start? I mean, I think, you know, if you wanted to go light, and I don't want to mean to put this, like, you know, in a negative way, because I love Brother Lecrae, and I think what his last three albums have been really great. I would say start there, his last three albums. I think Kendrick Lamar presents a great uh, a space for that. Lauren Hill, you really want, like, some really good stuff, especially her first album. That's 20 years old now. But the Miseducation of Lauren Hill? There you go. Yeah. So those are some spaces that you can begin to figure things out, and there's a lot of resources. When I first started writing this stuff, 18 years ago, there was hardly anything. Now there's a lot of different resources that you can pick up uh, that you can engage with this. And so for those that might think that somehow all hip-hop is evil, because right. you, you talk about it, yeah. like, like, and there are even some some African-American ministers who will, will go there and say that. Yes. Um, how would you respond to that criticism? I'd say again, you're missing you're missing a large part of the uh, of the story. Been duped, and it's easy, right? It's any time you have generational struggles, especially in the in the era of pop culture and how we've developed media. It's easy to blame youth culture and to be like, it's that's their problem. And they look at look at the music they listen to. You go all the way back to the '40s and '50s, right? And people were slicking their hair back and riding motorcycles and wearing leather. I mean, it pales in comparison now to what we would consider right now. It's like when you think about, oh, this person's tattooed and they're yelling. Move beyond that aesthetic, and what is the actual meaning? What is going on? Like we, like we brought up the analogy before with Tupac, you know, the rose that came up. Can we at least begin to look and see, man, what? How did that rose? What did that rose had to go through? What maneuvers did it have to come around? What did it hit? What obstacles did it hit? And then have to go back and then figure things out, and then to make it up into that crack. And so. Those are some of the things I think we we have lost as 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 because it's so easy now to judge and it's so easy now to believe whatever one outlet says about this particular thing. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel White Hodge about his recent book, Homeland Insecurity, a hip hop missiology for the post-civil rights context. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Daniel White Hodge about his recent book, Homeland Insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context. 
Well, we mentioned it at the top of the show, but I want to come back to it and go a little deeper. Yes. You are a podcaster yourself. Yes, you, sir. You host a show called Profane Faith. Yes, sir. Let's talk first of all about that title. Yes. I have a sense from reading this book why you chose that title, but tell us what the thinking was behind that. Well, I mean, I was going through different titles, and original was going to be Faith Disrupted, but there were some women from Australia who had already claimed that title, and I didn't want to mix anything up. So I was talking with my wife. She was like, just go with what you normally talk about, you know, profane, secular, and, and sacred. And I was like, oh, okay, let me talk about profane faith. And really what it is, and I say this in, in the opening credits, is that it's about areas of theology and faith that we don't normally talk about, right? They're outside the norm. And by several definitions, it that becomes them profane. It's not, the, it's not what we consider. It's outside of what we consider divine, right? And so I wanted to explore those areas. I wanted to have a show that dealt with an ethnic minority's perspective on faith, on Christian faith primarily. But I also had atheists and Gnostics, uh, Buddhists, Sikhs. I'm interviewing a Buddhist this next week, as, as a matter of fact. Some of it is just the times that happened when the Las Vegas shooting happened. I was like, I got to do some special issues on this. And that happened immediately. I just texted some friends. I was like, look, I got to get you on. Do you have some time? Let's do it. Boom. Other things are laid out, um, you know, trying to, as you know, trying to work with authors and publishers. Hey, we want this to come out in February because that's when the book is coming out. But I really do try to choose folks that, again, that are kind of out there and, you know, that wouldn't necessarily show up in, you know, we're really raising more questions than we are answers. And in those questions, do you find that you are talking to guests that you mostly agree with, or have you ever had guests that you profoundly disagree with? And I'd be very interested in how you've <laughs> thought about that philosophically in terms of, of how disagreement plays into your Absolutely. program. Yeah, no, definitely. There's been some some guests, as I'm, I'm sure you know, you get in and you think, oh, we're going to go this way, and then it just turns out being that other way. I've tried to set the show up. One of the critiques I had from, from one of my more conservative friends was like, oh, you don't have enough conservative voices on there. Oh, you got to get into the debate and everything. I it's not a debate show, so I've tried to stay away from that. This is not a—I didn't want to turn it into either on the left or the right, right, where you get in and you're just antagonistic with the, with the guest. I'm not trying to do that. I try to ask a lot of questions, and if it's something that I—I I don't want to be dishonest and be like, oh, yeah, I agree with that, but to be, you know, let me, let me, let me ask a little bit more, you know, on this particular subject and what you, what you meant by that, and, you know, and talk to me a little bit more about— this right here. And I'm not sure if I get that all the way, or I'm not necessarily sure I can agree with that. So there is that exchange and being able to be in a spot where, you know, the old saying, how do we agree to disagree? I try to at least model some of that. This is not the the, the, the canon, but it, I try to model some of that on the show. And just, like I said, it's a, it's, it's, it's a great space for me to, to hear another perspective on a certain take or whatnot. But you have a, you have a politics. You've got a position. And you're, yes. you're honest about that. Yes. And if we're honest, everyone has a politics. Yes. Everyone has a position. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And so part of, if I'm getting it, part of the core of the show, is inviting people to name those commitments. Yes. And to bring them on because they have those commitments. Absolutely. And to talk through them and to talk around them. Mm -hmm. So you're just, you're modeling a very good way of having conversations in the public sphere. We're tr I'm trying to, exactly. And, exactly. And so, so I, I'm interested now in the pushback. Mm -hmm. When someone writes you a complaint letter. Yes, yes. What, what, what does that sound like? Well, it's been more of, from an institutional perspective, how are you a Christian? 
and have you know, and have a show like this. Somebody sent a letter to my dean talking about you realize one of your faculty members has a podcast named Profane Faith. How dare he? That was, was literal. I mean, I'm quoting verbatim. And um, you know, like I said, I have you know friends of mine who know me. Will they'll email me and say, "Hey, have you thought about this?" or "Have you thought about that?" And I try to entertain as much of that as I can. Again, I'm not trying to. There's, there's a certain premise for the show. Again, as you know, if you set a show up to be a certain way, I don't necessarily, I think there's a time for debate, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to live in that. I don't, I don't, I'm not, and I'm not that type of person. I want to have more of a conversation with somebody. And that's what I try to tell folks when the critiques do come or when they show up. And, you know, when I bring authors on, I want to know more. Like, what went into writing this book? I mean, like, we're having this conversation now. It's like, what? There were there were certain things. Like, for example, you know, I got 150 pages into this book, and then the 2016 election happened, and I just trashed all 150 pages of those because I was like, I can't write this mess. Those are the type of things that I want people to un- better understand. And I try to talk with folks, you know, depending on where they're coming from. But I will say this. It's been a really, it's probably been a 50 to 1 ratio of 50 really good and then maybe one one negative, like, oh, you, you know, you suck and this and this and this and that. But the hardest part has been navigating institutions and what we think of as being Christian. And those, that's been, that's been probably the most difficult thing. And so if someone wants to find your show, Profane Faith, where would they go to find it? Absolutely. Well, you can go to whitehodge.com. It's a one-stop shop. There's a, my books are there. I have some select essays. And then I have a link to my podcasts, which is whitehodgepodcasts.com. Or wherever you find your podcast at, it's on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, SoundCloud, The Whole Nine. I also have another podcast coming out called The Progressively Black Podcast, looking at what it means to be black and leaning left. So that will hopefully start with my co-host, Tamisha Tyler, here in February, Black History Month. So uh, hopefully that'll get going. And then there's another podcast called Oh My Wednesdays, which is on the American Gods uh, television series, which just got picked up for second season. And that's with a good friend of mine, Kate Sanchez and J.R. Forsteros. When I'm bringing the conversation to a close, I will often ask a pair of questions, and I'm going to do that now. And, right. and, and the questions are basically, what is it that still frustrates you, and what is it that keeps you hopeful? And so I'm going to ask, first of all, wow. what is it, wow. Daniel White Hodge, that still frustrates you? That as a black man in 2018, I still have to continually deal with, you know, a lot of white racism and BS on a daily, if not minute by minute. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what is it that keeps you hopeful? What keeps me hopeful are people like you. I mean, quite honestly, I mean, to be in here and to have a a great conversation, you know, I know you'll be in spaces that I won't be able to get into. Um, And you'll be able to talk about my experience to people who would never listen to me, but they'll sit down and listen to you. Those are hopeful for me. And it's still hopeful that I can put out a book like this and that somebody will read it. That's so that's hopeful for me right now. Well, Daniel White Hodge, I've been wanting to have a conversation with you for yes. years at this point, and I'm so thankful that the schedule's aligned for us to get a chance to talk today. I hope that we'll have lots more chances to have you back on the show. Please keep writing books like this because I learned so much from this, and I was convicted by so much of this. Mm. As a person who's wanting to follow Christ, there's a lot that I need to do in terms of shutting my mouth and opening my ears. Mm. And I just want to recommend to any listeners out there who want a good place to start for that 
process of getting back to righteousness through repentance, start with this book, Homeland Insecurity, A Hip-Hop Missiology for the Post-Civil Rights Context, from my guest Daniel White-Hodge. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, David. We've been speaking today with Daniel White-Hodge. He's Associate Professor of Communication at North Park University in Chicago. He also serves as editor-in-chief of the Journal of Hip-Hop Studies, and he's the author of several books, including Heaven Has a Ghetto, The Soul of Hip-Hop, and Hip-Hop's Hostile Gospel, a post-soul theological exploration. We've been speaking today about his recent book, Homeland Insecurity, a hip-hop missiology for the post-civil rights context, published recently by IVP Academic Press. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijan. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.